0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for today's podcast is Dr. Thomas Wadden, professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and leading authority on the treatment of obesity. Um, Dr. Wadden, probably more than any person that I know, has done studies on a variety of treatments that range all the way from behavioral interventions to surgery, has been a noted uh, national authority, international authority on these issues, having been president of the leading scientific organization, the Obesity Society, and, and highly regarded for his work. So, Tom, welcome. Pleasure to be here today, Kelly. So the treatment of obesity is a potentially pretty complicated topic because there's so many possible ways one might approach this. I mean, it used to be we didn't have many treatments, but now there are medications, there are behavior therapy approaches, their surgery, and, and then their aggressive diets. or are a lot of different things that have been done. And like I said, you have such a great overview of this. Let's start with sort of a broad question. If you're thinking about applying a treatment to somebody, how do you think through what the options are and what might work best?
1: Well, you start with the person's body weight and really look at what is their body mass index, which is just a measurement of your weight in relationship to your height. And so if somebody has a, a, a low body mass index in the range of 25 to 30, then that person probably is going to be fine just having a program of diet and physical activity and some lifestyle modification. And with that individual, hopefully he or she can try to lose weight on their own and can do so using basic principles. And probably the most important things are, first of all, just set a meal plan for yourself so that you're eating uh, two or three times a day. You know when you're supposed to be eating, you know when you're not supposed to be eating, And the composition of the diet is not as critical for losing weight as is just reducing the amount of food that you eat. There's been so much debate over the past decade about is it low carb, is it low fat, and in reality I think after it was all said and done, the studies showed whatever you're eating, just eat less of it and you will lose weight. So that's the first thing is just reduce the amount that you're eating, cut out fat, cut out sugar, and then try to increase your physical activity. And if you can get up to 30 minutes
0: a day of walking, that is a great activity plan. So let me ask you about this composition of the diet. That's a very interesting statement you just made, that it doesn't matter so much as long as you eat less of whatever you were eating before. Um, Boy, there's been so much attention to that, I mean, the Atkins diet, all these other sort of diets come along and they they pick on a magic nutrient and say you've really got to do something special about this, they build a rationale for it, they try to explain the biology of it, so you'd think that one of these times somebody would get it right and they would pick the right nutrient or have the right diet, but it sounds like when when it all comes out in the wash and you do these studies that it's not the case. Well, there's a very important study done by Dr. Frank
1: Sachs at Harvard University with colleagues at the Pennington Biomedical Research Center. And what they did was to show if you cut calories by 750 calories a day, the macronutrient composition doesn't make a difference for weight loss. So whether you're cutting out carbohydrate, cutting out fat, there is no difference in weight loss. Now, it's important to remember that it is possible that dietary composition makes a difference For control of health complications. So if you're somebody with type 2 diabetes, then you may in fact may want to increase your protein intake a little bit and decrease your intake of refined carbohydrates. So surprisingly, after all the research was done, it looked like a a low carb diet that's a little bit higher in protein and fat may have benefit for people who are trying to control type two diabetes. So it's I don't want to give the impression that dietary composition isn't important to health, but it turns out when you're losing weight, it's calories that count, not these magical macronutrients that people have been
0: shouting about for the past decade. You know, has anybody ever looked at the, the following question, that different people may have different problems with different sorts of foods, that some people may crave a lot of fat, and that will be the problem nutrient in their diet, and other people will be sugar, and that finding a diet that matches up to that might make sense. Well, I think you put your finger on it, that
1: given that calories count, that gives people a, a great latitude to find a diet that they find is compatible with their food preferences, their taste palatability, and from that standpoint, find the diet that you like and that you can adhere to. And ultimately, that's going to be the diet that works. There have been just numerous trials that have shown that, that you've got to find something that you can adhere to short-term
0: and long-term if you're going to be successful with weight loss. Okay. Let's talk about drugs. Um, sure. You know, drugs come down the road, and there's a lot of excitement about them. They get introduced in the market. And this seems to be a pretty continuing process Um, that's happened over the years. What's the current status of drug treatment for obesity?
1: Remarkably, there's been very little progress in drug therapy for obesity since uh, 1999. That was the last time a a medication was approved in the United States, and that was the medication Orlistat. Prior to that, in 1997, uh, Cybutramine was approved. Cybutramine is known as Meridia, and then Orlistat is known as Xenical. And despite all the attention to trying to find new weight loss medications, we haven't had anything for the past decade. A number of companies had uh, invested in some drugs that block the cannabinoid receptor. That's a receptor that turns on your appetite and this drug was going to block it. That medication turned out to be associated with negative psychiatric effects, so an increased risk of depression and suicidal ideation. So right now we where we were 10 years ago, and the drugs that we have, Meridia and Xnecal, are effective, but they're modestly effective. Uh, they produce a, a weight loss of about five percent more than a program of diet and exercise. So somewhere between three to five percent greater weight loss, and the medications are expensive. They're about a100 dollars a month. So there's not a whole lot of, uh, activity in weight loss medications currently, probably the most popular medication is something called fentermine, which was part of the fen combination. That medication actually is effective and it's economical. There are three drugs on the horizon that will be going before the Food and Drug Administration in the next six to 12 months. Uh, they include uh, one medication, which is putting together a, a drug called bupropion, which is already approved for depression and for smoking cessation, and it's being combined with naltrexone, a drug for alcoholism. So that drug is being tested. It produces, uh, again, modest weight loss, but potentially could be a benefit. Another medication that's using fentermine in combination with something called topiramate. Topiramate is an anti-seizure drug. That approach has um, some exciting weight losses of about 10% or so of body weight. And then a third drug, which is looking at a medication that acts on the, the serotonin receptor in the brain and the hunger center. And that medication is effective modestly again. So I think it's possible we'll have a new weight loss drug approved. Even if we do, however, the question still remains Who's going to pay for it? Because these medications are going to cost probably three to five dollars a day, and in most cases, overweight individuals are asked to pay for those medications out of pocket. So that's going to be a barrier to their widespread use. You
0: know, it's so interesting that um, there are more drugs that have been introduced during that period of time since 1999, as you mentioned. Um, because it's not for want of trying, the companies are spending tremendous amounts of money to, because the the potential payoff could be enormous for them. Does did, does that tell us anything about the causes of obesity? And I mean, is it is this a problem that has so many inputs and so many causes that you're just never going to find a single drug that would override all of them, and it's only likely to work for a subset of the pop? I mean, does that kind of philosophy make sense? Does can we? assume anything from the fact that these drugs keep coming along but produce disappointing results for the most part?
1: Well, you've, you've put your finger on it, that when you're trying to modify the body's uh, ability to regulate food intake and actually just to regulate weight, that you're, you're coming up against problems. So anytime you try to influence a component of hunger and you can suppress that that is overridden by another signal from another part of the brain. So as you can imagine, uh, we've evolved, so we're exquisitely sensitive to making sure that we eat enough to stay alive. And so anything that is suppressing hunger signals potentially is gonna be overridden in another part of the brain. It's like playing whack-a-mole. You sort of suppress one thing here and it pops up in another area of the brain. So that's made it very difficult. Uh, Beyond that, I think we end up with the problem that no matter what drug you provide people that's going to be effective, it still is going to have to compete with what you have described as the toxic food environment. So you can put everybody on a medication, but if you're still exposing them to huge portions of food, high-fat, high-sugar foods, encouraging them to eat 24 hours a day, Uh, There's no drug in the world that's going to be able to overcome the toxic food environment. So in order to truly be able to see the true benefit of medication, you're going to still have to try to change that food environment that
0: is eliciting all of this desire to eat in people. So you painted a very interesting and important picture here that um, the environment bears down on people, and then there's, there are biological adaptations that occur when people lose weight. And for the people listening to this podcast, one of our previous visitors was Dr. Rudolph Leibel from the, um, from Columbia University, who's done a tremendous amount of interesting work on that very topic about what the body does as people are losing weight and how it becomes hard to lose weight because the body adapts and fights off the, the weight loss and things. So between the environmental barriers and the biological barriers. I mean, could, could you make an argument it's futile to try to treat obesity? I mean, do you think we're still making progress or do you think we stand with that?
1: Well, I think we are making progress on the treatment of obesity. It uh, would be facilitated by a, a couple of things. One is we'd have far greater progress if we could change the the food environment and the physical activity environment. That's going to make all these treatments more effective. And then I think if we can start to target Changes in brain activities in response to dieting, which Dr. Libell has talked so much about, that is going to be a big help. So, Dr. Rudy Libell, that you mentioned, has shown that when you go on a diet and you restrict your calories and you lose weight, you have a big drop in a hormone called leptin. And leptin causes a reduction in the number of calories that the body needs to maintain its basic function. So, you're Your resting metabolic rate drops about 10% and then the energy you expend during physical activity drops about 30 to 40%. And Dr. Leibel has shown if you give people leptin, if you can give them exogenous leptin, you can normalize this sort of energy efficiency that occurs with dieting. So I think that's where we're going to see some progress when you can really develop treatments that target the complication that's being developed as a result of dieting. good. Okay, that's a little more hopeful, which is nice. It, it is a little bit more hopeful. And, and the reality also is that people can lose weight if they can just change their personal food environment. I mean, we live in a, an environment, again, where we're, we're encouraged to eat all the time. But if you somehow can make a personal environment where you keep all these high-fat, high-sugar foods at arm's length you'll be able to lose weight. It takes more effort.
0: We wish we could make it easier for people to do it, but it can be done. Let's talk for a moment about surgery. More and more people are having surgery for obesity. I know over the years the techniques have been greatly improved and refined. Um, What's the current status of work on surgery for obesity and what, what sort of techniques are being used now? What kind of weight losses are you seeing? Well first, surgery has grown in popularity in this past
1: year, uh, 2009, I think that there are approximately a quarter million bariatric surgery procedures conducted. There has been enormous uh, growth in the interest in something called laparoscopic adjustable banding, and that's where you go right below the esophagus at the top of the stomach and you literally put a, a band around the stomach and you create a little pouch of about the size of one ounce. And what that pouch does is it makes it impossible to eat a large amount of food, as you might expect. It doesn't change any of the uh, digestive processes, it just decreases the amount that you can eat. In this uh, lap band, as it's sometimes called, that's a specific type of procedure, produces a weight loss of about 20% of initial body weight over a two-year period. So
0: that's so, double what the best drugs would do.
1: That's exactly know. right. So the best drugs, the best lifestyle program does about a 10% weight loss, so it produces about a 20% loss. So it's been uh, very popular. I've been astounded to be watching television and now see ads for the lap band and to be seeing all these billboards for it as well. So it's, it's definitely here. Now the problem is that in some cases, the lap band is ineffective because people are able to expand their pouch over time. Sometimes the band slips, it needs to be reoperated. So in 30 to 40% of cases, uh, people are not gonna get the result that they want two or three years later after the procedure's been done. The old uh, true gold standard operation is still the gastric bypass. In this case, you again create a small pouch below the esophagus and then you take a a limb of intestine, the jejunum, you attach it to this little pouch, and the food bypasses the stomach. And this operation seems to be more durable in terms of it produces a weight loss of about 30% of initial body weight, and the weight loss is sustained fairly well so that at two to three years after you've had the operation you'll probably have a loss of about 25%. The most striking thing that uh, people are finding today is that this operation actually changes body weight regulation, and by that I mean there are hormones that it affects so that it lets you feel less hungry. It decreases a hormone called ghrelin that's produced by the stomach, so it it quiets that down so you don't have hunger, and it also helps with other hormones that are associated with satiety, um, something called GLP-1. So I think you're going to see more attention to gastric bypass, and in particular you're going to see attention to it as a means of controlling type 2 diabetes, that people who have gastric bypass have about a 90% remission of type 2 diabetes, and it happens very quickly. Pretty remarkable. Pretty remarkable, and the surgeons, as you might imagine, feel like, well, uh, currently the criteria say you have to have a body mass index of 40, which is about 100% over your ideal weight. So you double your ideal weight. Yeah, double your ideal weight or if you have a uh, health complication, maybe a body mass index of 35, the surgeons would like to say, well, if you have type 2 diabetes, you should be eligible for gastric bypass no matter what your degree of overweight since
0: it helps you so much control your diabetes. So a lot of interest and a lot of activity in this area. There have been some studies, haven't there, on the cost effectiveness of surgery and whether the, I mean, it's not an insignificant investment to have the surgery done. In fact, I don't know if you know what it costs these days, but it'd be interesting to hear what it is. But there have been some studies, as I recall, on how how well that pays for itself. Yeah, well, let's talk about
1: two things. First, there's a landmark study that was done in Sweden that showed that people who had weight loss achieved with surgery actually did reduce their all-cause mortality. So they reduced their risk of death by about 24% over a 15-year period. So that's the strongest evidence to date that losing weight is good for you. We've always known that being overweight, obese is bad for your health, but this is the first evidence that really shows that losing weight is good for your health. But the question about the cost of it is an important one. To have a bariatric surgery procedure such as gastric bypass, the cost currently is about $25,000. For a lap band, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of fifteen dollars to $20,000, so it's a major investment. And from what I understand, uh, these costs are not recouped for many years you're going to find that people who've had either of these procedures are coming back into hospital to have adjustments or to have complications treated. And so you don't find cost savings uh, for many years down the road. It's going to be
0: probably 10 to 15 years before you really see the cost benefit. That creates a a problem for the health insurers, doesn't it? Because so often people who are a part of one health insurance plan will move to another because they move to a different place or get a new job. So investing in the surgery today, if it's not going to pay off for 10, 15, 20 years, then there's less incentive to cover that kind of thing.
1: A- absolutely. I think their feeling is, why don't you could go join a new health plan and let them pay the 25000 I have been impressed by the extent to which uh, health plans are paying for bariatric surgery. It's a- shocking and perverse in some ways. Uh, I evaluate people for bariatric surgery to make sure that they are psychologically appropriate for it. And I now have people come in all the time and I'll say, well, have you tried Weight Watchers or another less invasive procedure? And they'll say, well, well no, I can't afford Weight Watchers, but I can afford surgery. Oh, because of the and coverage. And so at, so at this point, insurance is covering bariatric surgery at a cost of $25,000, but they won't pay for a Weight Watchers meeting at a cost of $14 a week. And that, that in my mind, is rather perverse. You would like to try a less intensive intervention first. To the the credit of the insurance group, um, they are looking at the evidence, and the evidence is that bariatric surgery, particularly this um, Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, does produce long-term weight loss and good remission of health
0: complications. So this uh, may be a hard question to answer, but is there any way to use a crystal ball and look ahead? If you could project ahead 10 years, let's say, about what the treatment of obesity will look like. Where do you think the advances are likely to come? Do you think there'll be drug advances? Do you think surgery will get better? Where where do you think the excitement is going to be? Yeah.
1: Well, you know, if you'd asked me that 10 years ago, I would have said a lot of things, and here we'd be sitting, and not not much would have changed except for surgery. So I do think we're going to continue to see developments in surgery. I think there will be new medications, but I don't think the medications are going to have the impact that uh, consumers, dieters would like them to have. There is not going to be a magic bullet. We know again from work by Rudy Leibel and individuals like him that anytime you find a drug that's going to produce big weight loss, you are going to have these compensatory biological changes that fight against your body losing weight. I think that the, the advances are going to come in more subtle ways, and specifically, I think that we're going to see greater efforts to rein in the toxic environment, as your group here at Yale is trying to do, and that really has just caught fire. I mean, there's so much going on just at a grassroots level now in terms of trying to decrease the consumption of sodas and high-fat, high-sugar foods. So that's gonna make the backdrop more more effective, more minimal to weight control. And then I think that we will probably see a greater availability of uh, lifestyle modification being delivered to people in community settings, whether it's gonna be in schools, libraries, YMCAs, and you're gonna see a lot of uh, dissemination through probably smartphones, that you'll be able to get a weight loss program on your smartphone, you already can, and that could give people a, a lot of help in that regard. So it's gonna be probably a breakthrough more in the methods of delivering treatment than it is any new breakthrough, and well, here's a new way to eat less and exercise more. If we're going to have breakthroughs in pharmacologic treatment, I think it's going to be in the areas that um, come out from Rudy Leibel's work where people who have uh, severe obesity may have leptin replacement therapy to correct the deficits that are created by dieting. And it's possible we'll have new combination therapies that can address some of these compensatory changes that prevent you from losing as much weight as you want. So that that's the crystal ball. But Uh, I I think it's going to be modest improvement, incremental improvement, rather than these
0: breakthroughs per se. Good. Well, at least there's some improvement on the horizon, which is very nice. So thanks so much for sharing this. It was a terrific overview of this complicated topic. Thank you, Kelly. So our guest today was Dr. Thomas Wadden, professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and noted expert on the treatment of obesity. Please visit our website at www.yaleruddcenter.org. For a list of resources on food and food policy issues, an email newsletter that gets dispatched at no cost monthly, and then also a list of other excellent podcasts that we've recorded. Thank you.